And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? So last week, Lent 1, Canon Bales reminded us from the temptation of Jesus that Jesus has come as the second Adam to obey where the first Adam had not, to undo the damage and the grief, and to reclaim lives. And in these next four weeks, we go to John's gospel, and we get four vignettes demonstrating the kind of people whom Jesus has come as second Adam to restore to their true humanity, to purchase back, to redeem. First, here in chapter 3 of John, Nicodemus, the religious expert who knows nothing, really, until he knows Jesus. Next week, we go to chapter 4, where we meet the shamed and shunned woman at the well. Nicodemus's opposite, if you will, because she hasn't been to church in years. Then we go to chapter 9, the man born blind who has no idea where the amazing grace of the healing touch of his blindness, where that touch comes from, but he can only testify, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And then just before Palm Sunday, we go to visit Martha and Mary and Lazarus, Jesus' friends who find that this friend's love is literally stronger than death. But of all the characters that Jesus comes across in John's gospel, it's Nicodemus with whom I think I most identify. He brings out some of my deepest insecurities. On both sides of my family, my mom and dad were the first ones to go off to college. She, the daughter of Mississippi sharecroppers, he, the son of uh, East Tennessee hillbilly small farmers, and they both went on to grad school, and then I went on to grad school, and I spent 25 years sitting on a, on a theological faculty, looking around at every faculty meeting saying, like, who's finally going to say, what's this hillbilly hick redneck doing among us? He's the, Nicodemus is the sum of some of my lifelong fears. Here's an outsider, educated beyond his capacity to understand, promoted to a prominence where his ignorance becomes painfully evident. And so, seeing what Jesus has been doing, he realizes there's a new theological sheriff in town, and he, all he can think to do is slink in to talk with him in the middle of the night. Nicodemus, is, he's a minoritarian. He's a Pharisee on the Sadducee-dominated Sanhedrin, the Jewish High Council. His name is Greek, not Jewish, Nicodemus. Nike, which means victory, Nico, victory, and Demas, which means of the people, like democracy. His name means victory of the people. Now, we're not told why this preeminent Jewish teacher bears a Greek name, but his name, victory of the people, has a special bite. Not only does his Pharisaic party oppose the, the theology of the Sadducee party, the Pharisees affirming that resurrection is to come, and Sadducees saying, no, not so much, 
The Pharisees are non-aristocratic teachers of the people. They hang out in the synagogues throughout the land and minister to the little people. The Sadducees are the aristocratic power elite based in Jerusalem where they hold the keys to the temple and its high church liturgy. Nicodemus, think of it this way, Nicodemus is a lonely populist Democrat who's got his own singular voice in, the, in an assembly run by elitist Republicans. Nonetheless, even though he's in the assembly, Nicodemus doesn't really belong. He's become, though, though we're not exactly told how, this outsider has become an insider because when Jesus refers to him, he just doesn't, even though your text says it, he doesn't say you are a teacher of Israel. In the Greek, he says, you're the teacher of Israel. There's an emphasis on that definite article. You're the teacher of Israel and you don't get this stuff? Uh, and I have to wonder if it isn't because of his undeniable strength as the teacher that Sadducees have grudgingly made room for him on the council. And the very fact that he comes to Jesus at night suggests he doesn't feel his insider status is secure. Oh, I think I know Nicodemus only too well. But something has happened in Jesus' early signs to show Nicodemus that he doesn't quite have everything figured out. And though, even though everybody else thinks of him as the teacher, he realized there are some gaps in his knowledge. And think about the things that have been done in John's gospel just before this. Jesus changes water into wine at the wedding scene in Cana, in, in Galilee. And he has, he has stormed the temple and turned over the, the money changers' tables. And both of these, John says, these are his first two signs. Now, Nicodemus isn't a clever enough reader of Scripture to see that in the Cana miracle, God's promise to save his best wine for the age of the Spirit that's about to dawn has, is coming true. And he's going to have to go back and reread Ezekiel chapter 36. And so Jesus has to talk with him about being born again or from above, which is itself a double entendre, which is like making Nicodemus' brain explode. Do I go back in my mother's womb? What? Nor does it look like Nicodemus really understands what's going on in the lesson about the temple cleansing. Jesus has temporarily interrupted daily sacrifice and for those of us who've read ahead, we know that what Jesus is talking about is the fulfillment of Daniel, Daniel 9, when Daniel, Daniel had promised that a prince would come, and he would be cut off, and he shall make sacrifice and make offering cease. Nicodemus, it follows, could hardly understand that Jesus' act also signals the fact that as John goes on to say at the end of chapter 2, 
Jesus plans to introduce a whole new building project, making that temple of mortar and brick irrelevant. But to raise up a new temple made of living stones, made up of the likes of you and me, built around his own body as the cornerstone or the capstone. Once he's given his body for the sin of the world. And that's why in this chapter 3, Nicodemus hears Jesus go on to talk about this lifted up serpent from the book of Numbers, where God healed his rebellious people by having them simply look up at their curse being born on a piece of wood, another figure of Jesus' own body. Not, not that any of us could have seen the pattern of prediction of new wine, of sacrifices being fulfilled, and of a new temple being built around the one who would be lifted up to bear the curse. It's not that any of us could have seen that until the fulfiller showed up. The good news is he did show up. But from the signs that Jesus has already done, Nicodemus does know enough to know that something is afoot. Jesus' mystifying rejoinders revealed to Nicodemus, he doesn't understand a whit about things that at least in Jesus' estimation should be obvious from the theology of the Hebrew Scriptures. There's a death about us that requires a rebirth from above. And there's a sickness about us that calls for the lifting up of a curse bearer. But here's what I really love about Nicodemus. Not only does he know to come, but he knows when to shut up. After his initial, after his initial, but, but, and how can these things be? Finally, Nicodemus just goes quiet, and he lets Jesus talk. Apparently, he realizes he's in the presence of the true teacher of Israel. It's interesting to see the way this narrative flows through these really mysterious things. And finally, Jesus tells him the simplest thing that the Bible ever says. You see it on every NFL game. John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, everlasting life. In those few precious words, John thrusts, John shows us Nicodemus's nighttime foray, thrusting him into the bright daylight of God's mission to reclaim his lost world. After this conversation, Nicodemus has to go back into the dark place of the Sanhedrin and his colleagues 
schemes against the Lord of Light. In the face of their ultimately devilish scheme, we hear Nicodemus offer and get shouted down for a plea for simple procedural justice at the end of chapter 7. What voice he's allowed to have in the final condemnation of Jesus, we're not really sure. Mark says that the whole council was against Jesus. And whether that's hyperbole on Mark's part or whether something was done to make sure that Jesus' two friends on the council, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, weren't there, we don't really know. But we know that Nicodemus has become a believer. And we can only imagine how crushingly frustrating it must have been for Nicodemus to watch it all unfold, how sad it must have been. And I don't know about you, but we've all been given a voice somewhere. And we've all had to see our voice just go for naught. And we've just had to see really bad things happen. And knowing that there's nothing that we can do about it. I mean, think about our world. At this very moment, a fellow believer in Christ is losing his or her life somewhere due to persecution. And there's nothing that we can do right now except pray for them. Think about how God might use us as part of an army of love. I, I've been in, in the church long enough to just wonder, like, Lord, what are you doing? Sometimes it looks like the crazy people are in, are in charge of the asylum. And I hope you're not thinking that here, but maybe you are. <laughs> sometimes it looks, sometimes it feels like we watch proud fools give faint praise to a Jesus whose lordship and whose word they've not really submitted to. Sometimes we watch his precious body be broken into factions of advocacy for this cause or that or for this emphasis or that or this aspect of the truth or that for this power block or that when it's really about him. And sometimes all it seems we can do is believe with Abraham and Sarah that God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And all we can offer is our fervent Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. All we can offer is incense-aided prayers, Lord cover this to redeem these deaths by yours. When last we see Nicodemus, the teacher offers his most eloquent discourse as he wordlessly carries a hundred pounds of spices for his teacher's burial. The last mention of him is in John 19. Verse 39, Jesus has been taken down off the cross, and he's about to be put in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. 
Nicodemus also, who had at first come to him by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. Mute as his tongue is here, Nicodemus is speaking the most elegant words he possibly can. Here in his act of love, he rises to his calling to be the teacher of Israel. However rebirth comes to us, it must come through this tomb. The path to Jesus is being lifted up as a sign of God's love for the world and as the one in whom Israel's and the world's core sickness can be healed must call for this entombment. If an end is ever to come to unjust accusations and hearings, they must all be absorbed in this most heinous of injustices, the death of the one truly innocent human being who ever lived. And here's the good news that we're getting ready to celebrate at Easter on the far side of this Lent. The good news is that grave could not hold Jesus. Praise be, those spices just were not necessary. But it was important that Nicodemus would bring them. Brothers and sisters, in this season of Lent, may the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace in believing through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Standing together, let us affirm our faith, praying the words of the Nicene Creed, page 358. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. In accordance with the scriptures, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism.